So let us begin with a prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Holy Curidas, pray for us. Okay, so yesterday uh, we spoke about uh, the first dimension of uh, uh, the affectivity and its relation to uh, the spiritual life. Uh, we basically uh, talked a little bit about the role of the emotions and uh, uh, basically how this could really lead us to live in accord with the, the, the heart of Christ, right? And the whole notion of the heart and the danger, you could say, of falling into what we might call um, voluntarism, like doing things, clenching our fists, uh, doing things without really getting the true impulse of the heart. So right now in this talk, and it may uh, feed on to tomorrow as well. I'm going to focus more on the role, the work of our heart. Let's say to work, how to work on our heart uh, from an anthropological point of view. Okay, from an anthropological point of view. So I'm going to um, base this talk partly, not entirely, but partly on a. Uh, a talk that uh, Juan Luis Lorda, who is a priest of the work in Valladolid, gave at a conference in 2015, but I will add some other things, right? So, um, it was presented uh, in 2015 on the Year of Mercy, and, and so he'll have uh, different aspects of this, and he uh, talks a little bit about the heart from the anthropological point of view, and then he gives, in the second part, some highlights from uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the Christian meaning of the heart. So basically he went through the Catechism uh, of the Catholic Church and saw the different parts that refer to the heart and it's very actually very very rich. And then uh, the commandment of love and mercy and then finally uh, the charismatic or uh, ascetical way of what we would call uh, educating the heart. Okay, so um, uh, well, we all know about the importance of mercy, but we want mercy to be something uh, to be something very real in our lives uh, as priests and as um, people who actually have to speak of God's mercy a lot and and transmit God's mercy, heal, God's healing mercy to others, right? and uh, and so. He begins by quoting a passage from the letter of Pope Francis from Lent from 2015 in which he says, it, it sounds like, Pope Francis sounds like he's dictating this and then somebody simply took note. It's not, it doesn't sound like it was written down in a very uh, you know, systematic way, but it sounds like it was, it, it gives that impression. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, how greatly I desire that all those places where the church is present and especially our parishes and our communities may become islands of mercy in the midst of uh, the sea of indifference. In the sea of indifference. He's, and he note, basically he noticed that there's a lot of indifference. Yeah? That is, we live very well, 
we're doing our things, everybody's uh, occupied with their things, and yet we see too many negative things in news, and, uh, um, and there's so many bad things that happen, and even now, right, uh, with all the violence, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? And these things can overwhelm us, even the things that happen in our own life, right? And uh, there are many things out there uh, that we just don't know what to do about, and this fact can lead to great insensitivity. We just like, who cares? You know, who cares? We just don't care, right? And so that kind of breaks down, you could say, the sensitivity of our heart. Right? It, 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 the, the not caring aspect is contrary, you could say, to the Christian spirit, right? And, and so he, he, he gives a number of very interesting quotes, uh, like, for example, Jose uh, Ortega y Gasset, who was a uh, a Spanish philosopher who I think he died around 1955 or so. Uh, he quotes here from Ortega y Gasset, um, who had this great capacity of synthesizing complex ideas. And, um, and he said that we are above all a system born of, we, the, the human person, uh, born of preferences and disdain. You know, certain, each one of us, you know, and and uh, you could say that uh, we have things that we really like, that we prefer, and things that we really don't like, that we really disdain and we hate. And, and the machine uh, that is the support of all our personality, that which you could say most defines, what is most definitive about a person, is the heart. How our heart is. This is what you could say uh, defines us, right? And so he says that the heart is really the foundation of our personality. Our heart is, is the source of our preferences. It's whether we uh, accept somebody or not, right? Uh, whether we are open to others. Eh? Or even it's because of the heart that we despise or even, for that matter, uh, end up rejecting others, other people. Hmm? Uh, now, when we talk about the heart, we often talk about it as something rather opaque. It's, it's somewhat vague for us in terms of its definition. The intellect is very clear, right? Uh, but um, the heart, when we are talking about the heart, we're really talking about, you could say, the structure of our affectivity, yeah? the structure of our affectivity. And so when we speak of this uh, we may think it, that it lacks clarity, uh, or that it is certainly vague, because we can study intelligence, and uh, uh, intelligence has a certain, you could say, transparency to it, and um, we can realize what is an intellectual act, and there's a structure to it, uh, but that, that is not so much the case with the heart. The heart is not transparent. It is not visible. It does not have a very precise uh, structure. It doesn't work in just any old way. It is more opaque than the uh, intelligence. And, uh, but nevertheless, it can be known, uh, but it doesn't just function in just any old way. Mm. Now, where does the heart appear? Like, where do we see the heart, you could say, happening? It happens when we are moved. When I say I am moved by something, right? Uh, that is, we notice, we pick up our own uh, affectivity. Mm? 
uh, it is our affectivity that moves us to act. Mm? How do the affections ultimately uh, function? Uh, um, well, when a person thinks of themselves, you know, that's, you could say they, de they define themselves, they think of themselves, uh, what, they, what they do, why they do something, largely depends on their own motivations, what they're motivated. Why am I motivated to do this, right? And that ultimately is what it loves. I love, I, I am motivated by what I love. I am motivated by what I love. Mm? I'm motivated by the loves that I have. Mm? And that's why Ortega and Gasset, Ortega y Gasset says that we have a structure of affections which defines our lives. Mm? He also refers to a famous book by Dietrich von Hildebrandt. You've all perhaps are aware of the book by Dietrich von Hildebrandt um, on the heart. It's a beautiful book on the heart, really, and on the structure of, um, of our own uh, affectivity, you know, because uh, the affectivity, the emotions, and all that are, are something that we have uh, in common with the animals. You know, at dogs, uh, they get uh, excited and their master comes home, they bounce up and down, they get excited. You know, animals have that in common with us. That is true. Mm -hmm. Well, Dietrich von Hildebrand, he's, you could say, the philosopher of love, the, the philosophy of affectivity. In fact, he wrote a book called The Heart, and another book, I think it was called The Art of Living in 19, 1965, where, where he, precisely he, uh, he, he studies the very structure of our affectivity. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that many people, not that many philosophers show that much uh, interest in the emotions, uh, but some do. Uh, there's another philosopher, uh, but then, well, philosopher, I suppose uh, he's a philosopher, uh, more modern, his name is Daniel Goleman. He's spoken a lot about uh, uh, emotional uh, intelligence. Basically, he says that we have an intelligence that guides and determines, uh, of course, our lives, but the, he says basically the emotions drive us actually a lot more. They have a much greater effect than the intellect. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is Daniel Goleman, uh, he says that the emotional intelligence gives you a kind of a self-awareness. Uh, we, we, we know what we're feeling, we know why we're feeling it, uh, which is basically the, 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 the basis of good intuition, good decisions. Mm -hmm. But it's also a kind of uh, a moral compass, right? And, um, and, and then it helps when we have that moral compass <coughs> in our own self-management, handling, uh, like now, <laughs> distressing emotions when things don't work. And, uh, you, know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, because uh, if we don't have that control over those emotions, they can take over, right? Uh, so, emotional intelligence means that we don't let those emotions take over or, or cripple us or get in the way uh, of what we're doing. Like a child, uh, you know, gets into a temper tantrum because th they haven't have, don't have that emotional maturity yet, of course. So, it, it, uh, emotional intelligence, we say, this is uh, again Daniel Go Goleman, uh, helps us Emotional intelligence help us, helps us to marshal positive emotions. You know, to, I don't, wouldn't say control them so much as to, as to, uh, you, you could say marshal them. Like really 
getting involved, really enthused about what you're doing, aligning our actions with our passions. And the same goes with, like, for example, um, with empathy, this capacity to empathize, knowing really what somebody is feeling. Eh? Somebody who has no empathy uh, is, uh, is often <laughs> considered psychologically disordered. They don't, it's not that they don't care about what somebody feels. They just are not able to pick up that language of how somebody feels. Eh? And, and so uh, emotional intelligence helps us to put it all together into a skilled uh, relationship with others in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we think we are indeed quite rational, but indeed the emotions uh, uh, have to be placed in line uh, with our intellect. Now, this is now going back to Juan Luis Lorda, no? and, uh, uh, you know, these are really the civic virtues in our streets uh, that, that would be really helpful to have more affectivity, you could say, in our social life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and von Hildebrandt, Dietrich von Hildebrandt, underlines that on top of sentiments, there's also a spiritual component to our uh, affections. There's a de- indeed a deep spiritual component. Eh? In fact, this is a much higher level, uh, which is situated in the area of the emotions. Why? Because, uh, because they have a spiritual object. Eh? So... Uh, we, you know, we could be moved by our emotions, yeah? but the object in front of us is a spiritual object. Mm-hmm. When you love God, when you love music, and you're touched by a beautiful symphony, yeah? this, is not, this is not an animal reaction. Yeah? I mean, uh, animals uh, don't react in front of spiritual objects. Yeah? You know, so uh, even if we may be accompanied by uh, sentiments, right? Um, and so, um, uh, so Hildebrandt says that to negate in the affective life the spiritual dimension content constitutes a heritage of the Greek, uh, what he calls intellectualism, mm-hmm. which saw. In this area, only reason and will. That's it. Right? So the, the intellectual tradition of, of the Greeks, of Aristotle and so forth, just they just saw, uh, you know, reason and uh, and will. That's it, right? But the emotions are are part of our our let's say our animal nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, he mentions uh, the joy we can have, for example at seeing a, a, a noble action, this is von Hildebrand again, when we see a noble action, we see somebody do something beautiful, something noble, an act of generosity, we say, wow, that's beautiful. Right? Uh, well, that emotion that we experience is spiritual, even if it is accompanied by something, uh, something of a feeling or something sensitive, you could say. Right? We capture something of beauty we capture a spiritual beauty there when we see something, let's say, beautifully noble being done. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we understand uh, that, that we were ultimately made, you could say, to be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. We were made to be happy. And it can happen 
uh, it can happen in our life that we, we love something, we know we love them, we know what in our head, but we don't have any feelings. We feel like, ah, I don't feel. And that is a very strange sensation. We know we love this person, we know we love God, but we don't feel anything. It could happen in a state of depression, for example. You know you love, but you just don't feel it. Maybe it comes from exhaustion or, I don't know, overtiredness. But this, that is not a normal state. It's kind of weird when we don't feel moved at that which we love. And the fullness is that we love, but that we also perceive this love. That is, that we feel it. And this in itself, you could say, is a form of fullness. Without this, we don't really have true, uh, true happiness. Mm -hmm. And so, will and heart are called to enter uh, into these uh, great goods. Now, I have a section uh, here on uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand who talks further about this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip that to, you know, to, to, to sort of stay more on the talk by Juan Luis Lorda. And, um, and, you know, he, because, you know, we could go into great detail about the beautiful uh, explanations that um, Dieter von Hildebrand gives about the heart. And, uh, but Juan Luis Rorda emphasizes the fact that great masters of the spirit, they often speak about this, you could say, feeling or sensing uh, the true, the good, the, the beautiful. Like St. John of the Cross, for example. Hmm? He, he says, you know, how, how do you overcome smaller loves, smaller affections, or maybe uh, uh, attachments? You're attached to this small thing, this comfort. Well, you overcome them with greater loves, greater affections. God, love of others, but in a very concrete way. Yeah. And there he gets from St. Augustine uh, that, that said that, that we only put order in greater loves when we can put, when we really love the more inferior loves. Only we can really love the great loves when we really put order in, in the more inferior ones. Right? And indeed, uh, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says that the inferior attractions in us have a, have a certain spontaneity. Mm -hmm. The structure of our affections can be multiple, it can be plural, and many things can pull at our heartstrings, you could say, and there can even be almost like a, like a conflict. right? So in the, in the City of God, St. Augustine, when he, when he speaks about the different disordered loves, when man loves gold more than what is just, yeah. well, that's not the fault of, of the gold itself, but of man. It's a disordered love. Same with creatures, eh? since they are, creatures are made by God, and, they, and obviously they are good, and they can be loved uh, properly or well, or they can be loved badly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so they have obviously have to be loved uh, in an ordered fashion. So when we speak about the definition of uh, virtue, you could say in some ways the definition of virtue is, is also the order in, in the way we love, or the order in love. And von Hildebrand says that a, a good heart is one with ordered loves. A good heart is one with truly ordered loves. Not like, like, not like the rationalists would have said, loves 
that are, you could say, under submission. Mm -hmm. but there are no, no great loves that truly attract or that truly moves you. Mm -hmm. like, like Plato, he said, you know, the word enthusiastic, right? It, it really means enthuse, enthos, entheos. It really means, uh, it means uh, as being moved by God. Mm -hmm. That is, loves that are practically drunk out of love for God, right? So, uh, that's the nature of, you could say, enthusiasm. You know, when you're enthusiastic, you feel it. After all, where are we, after all, going to get strength to do what we have to do? Hmm? Well, we get strength from our love, from our heart, from our enthusiasm. It's easier to do something when we're enthused about it, of course. And that's a, it's a form of strength. Our strength comes when our loves are, are ordered, not when they are disordered. Hmm? We don't mean ordered in the sense that they are all, they are all, let's say, lined up perfectly and placed in boxes. Uh, you know, but I'm I'm talking about here powerful loves, those loves that ultimately that drive us, that lead us to sanctity. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't mean that that everything has to actually be felt or actually ha everything has to be sensible. But what is clear is that virtues in a person are the result the result of ordered loves, powerful and intense loves, those that really drive our lives uh, ahead. A person who doesn't have these loves, you could say doesn't have, the moral, uh, doesn't have true moral strength, doesn't have strength to overcome its own setbacks mm, and uh, its own laziness, plus all the difficulties around us uh, that are often numerous. Yeah, or when we experience uh, um, opposition. Mm -hmm. And Juan uh, Luis Lorda then quotes a phrase from uh, Aquinas, Dilectatio est de necitate virtutis. Mm -hmm. True enjoyment, uh, rejoicing, needs um, virtues uh, true enjoyment needs to be virtuous for it to, to happen. And for you to be happy, truly enjoy, you really need to have virtue. He says, there is nobody truly virtuous who does not rejoice in good works. There's nobody truly virtuous who does not rejoice in good works, says St. Thomas Aquinas. What is proper to a virtuous person is is um, is that it, it appears beautiful to them. It, it seems beautiful to them, the idea of loving God and loving neighbor. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is a, an important point here that I wanted to stress that I, I found is an important point that Juan Luis Lorda makes. It's an anecdote from uh, Yves Conga, no? Cardinal Conga. And he, he used to say that uh, when his mother used to send him on Sundays to visit his, his governess, uh, when he was a little boy, and uh, this, this governess was also the governess that his own mother had. And uh, this lady uh, used to read the gospel to him and give him some kind of instructions. And uh, she said, and this is what he remembered all his life, she said that 
that true happiness consists in doing what we have to do and find joy in that, right? That is, doing our duty, but finding joy in that duty. Right? Of course, if we, if we do what we have to do, like against the grain or sadly, or we don't like this, Obviously, that's not good. We were doing our duty, we were, we were, but there's something wrong if we're like, Ugh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to do these things, meet this person, or what have you. you know? um, and uh, obviously, if we think of our own personal priestly lives, there's all the more so. Huh? And uh, there are always many reasons for tiredness uh, or reasons why something is not satisfying to us. But the real satisfaction has to be in finding the beauty that this has. That is, that I'm doing my duty out of love and I, get, I can actually get joy out of this. And uh, we, have, we, as priests, of course, have the advantage of being dedicated to things that are intrinsically beautiful. Everything we do is intrinsically beautiful when we think about the things we do. And uh, part of our strength is simply really to discover that they are <laughs> actually quite beautiful what we get to do, whether it's instructing, whether it's the sacraments. Uh, uh, this is indeed a strength that we have. We have to be, uh, that is really something quite beautiful that we tap into this beauty. Hmm? And uh, so uh, if we arrive at this, that is being able to rejoice in doing what we ought as being the greatest happiness, that reality is part of what you might call the education precisely of the heart or uh, what Plato speaks of as you could say in Spanish they say buena educación you could say in English it doesn't sound as right but uh, good good manners you know proper civic education it's not not quite civic education but you know good manners good emotional education right and um, he has a powerful line here uh, um, Plato says, we do evil because of the pleasure it gives us and we separate ourselves from the good because of the pain it produces. Okay. And so, in other words, that would be bad education or bad emotional uh, education of the heart or bad manners in the sense that we think it's hard to, something's hard to do, we're, we're lazy and so we don't do it. Okay. So that's why he insists we have to be educated from, from youth so that we can rejoice and feel, rejoice at doing the good and feel sorrow uh, uh, as is truly due. I mean, sometimes we have to feel sorrow, but only when it's true, due, as it should be. Uh, and that is at the root of good manners, right? That is, we feel sorrow when we're doing, in some way, evil or, or not doing the good. Uh, and to be, able to, to, to be able to rejoice and feel sorrow as we ought. That is, I'm feeling happy now because I ought to be happy. And I'm feeling sorrow because I ought to be sorrow. It's not that we uh, avoid forever being sorrowful. You know, there are reasons sometimes that we are sorrowful. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, it would be, it would feel horrible for me to lie, mm -hmm. to be a liar, or to lie in any way. I would, I would suck. I would feel really bad. Mm -hmm. uh, that's such an act, to lie. Mm -hmm. or to deceive somebody would be repugnant to me. Mm -hmm. I just can't see myself ever lying, you know, or being fraudulent. Mm -hmm. 
Or I just can't see myself speaking evil of my friends. That would seem horrible to me. It would like, literally cause me pain to calumniate my friends, I don't know, in a blog post or something like that. That would seem horrendous. I remember uh, one of the numerous saying to a, we were just talking and passing, and he said, you know, uh, I saw, he saw somebody, uh, I, don't th- I don't know if he was from a car, he just threw out a, like a, like a, a McDonald's cup, you know, an empty Coke cup or something, just threw it out on the, on the sidewalk. It just landed there, you know? and the guy didn't stop to put it in the garbage. And he said, I, I, I thought about that, and I said, I, I can't. It's in, impossible for me to throw garbage in the street, just like throw it on the sidewalk, right? Like uh, whatever. You know? and, um, but on the other hand, it seems to me wonderful, fantastic uh, to be like this great person, you know, like so-and-so, this model that we feel, you know, uh, we imagine the example of virtuous people. It seems we are, we are attracted by that virtuous behavior. Hmm? And that indeed was the basis of all classical education, right? And that's why the Aeneid was written, the Iliad, the Odyssey, you know, Homer. That's why they read all those things, because it seemed to them uh, examples of just supreme virtue. Hmm? That's where you could read how one ought to be, right? These great figures. I suppose you could say the same too about uh, the Old Testament, you know, and the great David, King David, obviously fulfillment in, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we have the highest example, Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what I want to be. Hmm? And to us, and that seems, has to seem to us to be absolutely beautiful and to move us. That, you could say, is the essence of moral virtue, of moral strength. And we, this is especially true for youth because they're at a time when all their affections are, are beginning to awaken. Mm-hmm. You know, they're beginning to, to connect with the truths of their life. Eh? That's, when they, that's when they really truly fall in love and uh, with what is truly beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, would that they love that which is beautiful. Would that they love that, that which is Not that they be indifferent. Mm-hmm. Not that they have some kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, like um, uh, sort of uh, a paralysis in their ability to capture that which is beautiful. They're just, whatever. See, moral strength comes from being in love with that which is beautiful. So, um, okay, so uh, anyway, there's more we could say about this uh, and... uh, uh, and so, the next section, just briefly, uh, you know, to, without uh, going too long here, but um, next section, because I have been going now for um, 33 minutes. So what I will do uh, is I will, just to give you guys a break, I will stop and I will continue the recording so you can listen to it on a, well, on a different uh, moment. Uh, and that'll be more on a section on the catechism, the heart in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. 